Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, that each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being found in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Father, what a marvelous day that you have written prophetically here through the pen of the Apostle Paul, that a day will come when your son's name that is ignored and used in vain, that it will be given the honor that it is due, that every single person who's ever lived in all of human time will confess before they're either brought into heaven or eternally banished into hell that he is Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you that this day remains where we can still call upon him in faith. And so I pray your spirit, who you said would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that his ministry would be real in our midst here and in our other campuses and those who are live streaming. Thank you for your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And thank you that it nourishes us. And we look to you today with the Spirit's help to feed our souls, that we would be strengthened so that as we leave this place and are scattered throughout the community and the world, that you would use us even in this new week to bring people into the kingdom. Father, help us. Let this week be a fresh week. Let it be the first day of the rest of our life, that if we've been lackadaisical and even inviting people to church and then trying to share a word of testimony, may this week be different. May you put a fire in us that only you can do. So, Father, I ask you now for your help, because without you I can do nothing. So please come and fill me and use me and anoint me, that together we might lift up the Lord Jesus, and I ask it in his holy name. Amen. Take God's word this morning. Would you turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 13? One of the truths that God's people in the American church are deprived of concerns the knowledge of biblical prophecy. It's called the subject of eschatology. Eschatos deals with last things, future things. And unfortunately, because the church, largely in America, has jettisoned expository preaching, prophecy is no longer addressed. People ask me all the time, they say, I never hear sermons anymore on prophecy. That's because the Word of God is not being expounded verse by verse. Now, the book of Revelation is a whole book on prophecy, and so you cannot help but avoid it. But understand that approximately 30% of the whole Bible is prophetic in nature. So any book of the Bible that you preach through, you're going to encounter prophecy. God said, for I am God and there is none other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. And we're learning here in the Revelation precisely how God is going to accomplish his good pleasure. 
Now, unfortunately, many have tried to foretell the future and have only failed. In the 1870s, Milton Wright, the bish- a bishop in the Church of the United Brethren of Christ, stood up and rebuked a college president because he said 50 years from now, men would be flying like birds. And Bishop Milton Wright said this, and I quote, "'Flying is reserved for the angels. I beg you not to mention that again, lest you be guilty of blasphemy.'" And of course, most of you know that 33 years later, his two sons, Wilbur and Orville Wright, made their first powered flight there at Kitty Hawk. God is interested that you know the future. And one of the reasons he tells us about the future is that it might change our life today. It's so that you'll be prepared, not scared. And so as we study through the Revelation, if you really understand it, it will literally change your life. Now, we've arrived this morning at a passage of Scripture that maybe there's more speculation on this text in terms of the realm of future things than any other set of verses. We're dealing this morning with 666, with the mark of the beast. Some time ago, I read about a highway, Highway 666, that runs through Utah, Colorado, and New Mexico. Um, being having their number changed to Highway 491. And it took a number of years to make that happen. 666 became a highway in 1926, and it's called as such because it was the sixth branch off of Interstate 66. But when they were finally granted the name change to Highway 491, it wasn't because the people were superstitious. The reason they pled with these three state governments is because so many of the signs were stolen. People wanted them, I suppose, for their memorabilia. I was in a store recently making a purchase. Actually, it was Kentucky Fried Chicken, and the lady uh, said it would be (laughs) $6.66. No, I'm not superstitious. In fact, I, I used it as an opportunity to witness to her and asked her if she knew about 666, which she did not. Um, not long ago, I received an American Express card. I showed it to Rick Forschner. And on the back, my security code was 666. <laughs> now, I'm a little reluctant to share that with you. You might judge me. I don't know. But I'm not superstitious. But the mark of the beast is a very, very important mark that, unfortunately, it has created a lot of unwarranted fear, even amongst God's people, and a lot of false speculation because it's really not understood. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, this is the fifth sermon in chapter 13, and we'll finish the chapter today. But just so that we have a flow of the unity, I'm going to read the entire chapter. And as I read through it, I hope in your mind you're thinking, oh, I understand that verse, or I don't understand that verse, and I want to go back and listen to the message again. Revelation 13, beginning now in verse 1, and the dragon, Satan, stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast, Antichrist, coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne in great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. 
and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear." If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast. We studied him last week, the false prophet, as he's also called. Another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed." And he causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666." Now, in the three verses we're going to look at today, there are three principal truths that I want to underscore in your thinking concerning the mark of the beast. If you're taking notes, let's first think about the fact that the mark, the beast's mark is a mark of renunciation. The coming mark of the beast is a mark of renunciation. Remember, the context is religious, as verse 15 underscores, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause all as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And then he says, and he causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark. Now, I'm calling this a mark of renunciation because I want you to understand clearly that this is not forced on an individual. They're not tricked into this. The Greek language is even clearer than the English text. But again, in verse 16, notice the words, and he causes, he, of course, being the false prophet, all, everyone, to be given a mark. Now, this sounds like they have a gun to their head, that they have absolutely no choice at all. But the actual picture behind the masses of every tongue, tribe, and nation, similar terminology to those who are saved and refuse the mark during this time, 
But the terminology behind these words is that people are eagerly pressing on after this mark. It will be an exciting day for most people because after the rapture of the church, when the world is in turmoil, they will have a Savior who will deliver them. Most people will willingly, gladly receive this mark the way a soldier wears a medal or an athlete brandishes the uniform that he has on. The average person who follows the beast and worships the image of the beast will want others to know that they have aligned with this world leader. What most people do not realize is that they will have been deceived. And that's the nature of deception. When you're deceived, you don't know you are deceived. And of course, um, what happens here, in essence, is the Antichrist will have a one-world government. He'll have a global concentration camp of sorts because no one will be able to operate without his mark. Uh, there are a few truths here about this coming mark that I want to underscore in your thinking. First, some will take his mark because they are convinced. Some are going to take his mark because they are convinced. Now, there's a principle that runs all the way through the Word of God, and it is this. When people reject the truth long enough, then they are giving the devil permission to feed them his lie. Jesus taught this truth, that if a person rejects what they know to be true, then they will end up believing what is false. Hold your finger here and turn to the Gospel of John. John is the fourth gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The Apostle John gave us the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the Revelation. He gave us five books in the New Testament. Now, let me set the context for you. Here in John, the 12th chapter, Jesus is doing all kinds of miracles. And the miracles that he does are of great significance because there were particular miracles that would be unique of the Messiah. How would we know when God took on our humanity? Well, there's all kinds of prophecy to be fulfilled, and among those prophecies, were certain miracles that he would do. And he was exercising these, and the people were literally physically watching him perform these miracles. Now notice uh, John 12 and verse 35. Jesus said, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light. The darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, Believe in the light, there's your decision, in order that you may become sons of light, children of God. These things Jesus spoke, and he departed and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many miracles before them, yet they were not, circle those words, underline them, were not, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, Notice it's an Old Testament quote, and so the typeset changes. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause they could not. Circle those two words, could not. For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, and then he quotes, by the way, the same text that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 11 as to why the majority of the Jews in his day were in utter belief, unbelief. He, God has blinded their eyes. He, God, has hardened their heart. Why? So that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. 
Jesus could not have said it any more plainly than he says it here. In John 12, 37, he says they were not believing. And so in John 12, 39, he says they could not believe. A time can come in an individual's life, and maybe someone in this room or within the sound of my voice, that because they will not believe, they can reach a point where they cannot believe. When a person begins to resist the light, and Jesus is the light of the world, he has brought us the fullest revelation of God. In the uh, opening words of this great gospel, he says that the Lord Jesus has exegeted, he has explained the Father for us. And when a person resists that light, something begins to happen on the inside. You cannot take God's grace lightly. God said through the prophet Isaiah, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Listen, no one in this room drew themselves to the Lord. You didn't come to faith in Jesus Christ by yourself. Why? Because the Bible says before we are converted, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and dead men have no capacity to respond. And so the initiation began with the Lord God. He was the one who drew you. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. Now, he draws all men. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But not all men respond to that drawing. And when they don't, they're overwhelmed with the darkness. By the way, Jesus taught this really in all the Gospels. Listen to these words. You might want to write out in the margin next to verse uh, 37, Luke 8, 12. Next to verses 37 and 39, write out in the margin, Luke 8, 12. Let me read it to you. It's from the parable of the sower. Jesus said, those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. When a heart is unresponsive to the truth of the gospel, and understand God is long-suffering. God takes no pleasure, the Bible says, in the condemnation and the judgment of the wicked. But if we put God off and put God off and put God off and say, no, I don't want this born-again stuff. No, I don't want the Bible. No, I don't want to hear about Jesus. No, I'm fine. I like the kind of Christianity I have. Don't give me this born-again kind, the only kind, by the way, that Jesus said can get you into heaven. And you keep telling God, no, 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 no. Eventually, he gives you your wish. The devil is given permission as a judgment of God to snatch the seed from the human heart that you may not believe and be saved. And you may be here or you may be on one of our campuses or listening today, and you're not sure that if this were your last day on earth, that heaven is your home. You would be wise to respond today. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late, not because Jesus will come back. He may come back before this service is over, but because of your lack of response to the truth, you will not be able to be saved. It's a warning that God gives us. Now, hold your finger. You can leave John's gospel and go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's to the right of where you are. You're in John's gospel. All the books in the Bible that begin with the letter T are found together. They go from long to short. And so Thessalonians is a longer word than Timothy, longer than Titus. So you got first and second Thess, first and second Tim, and then Titus, five books, all right? And they come right after Gary eats popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, you got it. All right, nine books. So you can find one, you can find... Okay. Now, in 2 Thessalonians 2, let me set the context. 
Paul writes this second letter to respond to some questions that people have concerning the catching up of the church. And some had thought that maybe they had missed the rapture, that is, they misunderstood Paul's teaching on the rapture, and that it had already maybe even taken place. And so he says here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, pick it up in verse 1 so we understand the flow. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Our gathering together to him is what the Bible calls the rapture, when the dead in Christ will be raised first and those of us who are alive will be caught up together and will meet the Lord in the air. By the way, the doctrine of the resurrection is an Old Testament truth. It goes all the way back to Genesis. Jesus defended the doctrine of the resurrection to the Sadducees who denied it from the very tense of a verb. I am, not I was, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's not a New Testament doctrine, but what is unique in the New Testament that Paul says, behold, I'll tell you a mystery, a mysterion, we shall not all sleep, will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. What was not revealed in the Old Testament was the rapture, that there would be a generation of people who would be caught up. And Jesus shares it with those men after Judas, the only unbeliever, leaves that evening. And he says in John 14, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am in heaven, there you may be also. And so as this next chart shows, you can see God's schematic is given in Scripture. Uh, the next great event in the uh, prophetic calendar of God is called the rapture. Now, the word rapture is not found in our English Bible. It's found in the Latin Bible that was used for over a thousand years. But we have a lot of terms today in evangelicalism that we capture out of the Latin Bible, like the word Trinity, not found in the Bible, but the doctrine of the Trinity is. It's a Latin term that describes a biblical event, the harpazo, the catching up. It's called the rapture. The church will be caught up, and then a seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation period will begin to unfold. It's divided into two halves, as you can see, and while the Tribulation period is unfolding on the earth, God's saints, the church saints, will be evaluated in heaven. You will give an account as a saved person for how you serve the Lord Jesus, and if you did it lackadaisically or indifferently or for the pleasure in glory of self, or for men rather than for the living God, it will be wood, hay, and stubble, to use Paul's words, when tested by fire. And so rewards will differ throughout all of eternity. There's coming a day of evaluation that will follow by the marriage supper of the Lamb. While that is happening on the earth will be the seven-year period that will culminate with the second coming of Jesus from heaven, followed by his thousand-year reign upon the earth. This next chart shows the distinction between the rapture and the second coming of Christ, and it's very important that you don't confuse the two. They are two distinct events, and if you understand the distinction between the two, you won't get blinded by some passages. At the rapture, Jesus comes for his church. He comes for his bride, that where he is, we may be also. We meet the Lord in the air. That's called the day of Christ when he takes us to heaven. 
at the second coming that happens seven plus years later, he comes back with his bride, Revelation 19. And his feet, the prophet says, will literally set on the Mount of Olives. Just as you saw him, Acts 1, ascend into heaven, so he shall literally return. Zechariah 14, Acts chapter 1. In the rapture, we meet the Lord in the air. We're taken into heaven. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, the church comes back to the earth. That's called the day of the Lord, two distinct different events. And so when Paul, the apostle says here in verse one, are gathering together, he's referring to the rapture. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and are gathering together to him, look at verse two, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, remember, this is first century church. The Bible is still being written at this time. And so God was still communicating in many portions in many ways. Now the canon of Scripture is completed. God is not giving new revelation. And we'll study this truth when we come to the final chapter in the revelation. But in that day, sometimes uh, a person would be anointed by God to speak. And so the Bible says, test the spirits to see whether they be from God. A person would be given a word of prophecy. It would be equivalent today to a man or a woman reading the scripture out loud. Some even said that a letter came from Paul and Paul warned them. He said, look, all of my letters have this distinguishing mark on it. So don't be shaken. Don't be fooled as if some spirit, some prophecy, some letter, some person said that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't be shaken by it. Now, here's another chart here as in reference to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in the Bible is not a reference to a 24-hour day. Now, whenever you see the word yom in Hebrew or the word day in the English text, even in Greek, it, when it's accompanied by a number, it always means a literal day, a 24-hour day. So when the Bible says in six days God created the heaven, he meant just that. And by the way, that's how Moses understood it when he gives an analysis of why we should work six days and rest one, because God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. But when you see this phrase, the day of the Lord, and you see it over and over again in the Bible, it's obviously not a 24-hour day, though it mimics a biblical day that goes from sundown to sundown. A Jew, every Sabbath, starts his Sabbath. When the brightest star in the sky shows up, they say, mm, yep, that's sundown. Now, when I was in Israel and I was talking to one of my rabbi friends, I said, now, is that the star? He said, well, it depends which uh, denomination you're involved in. You know, so, so, some, some count, well, this star or that star or three stars or one star. But the point is, it starts at sundown. It gets dark and dark and dark, and the sun comes up, and then it gets dark, and then the Sabbath ends, a whole day is finished. Well, that's what is going to happen prophetically. I believe we're in the shadows of the day of the Lord. Things are getting darker and darker, but when the rapture takes place, evil like we've never seen it, is going to unfold upon the earth. The restrainer that Paul speaks of in this chapter, the Spirit of God will be removed, and hell will have a holiday. But then Jesus will come back, the second coming, and it will get as bright as day again for a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, it will get dark again. And we'll see why when we come to Revelation chapter 20. 
So Paul, when he describes the day of the Lord, like the Old Testament prophets, there's some very beautiful, magnificent parts to it, and then there's some very dark parts to it. The magnificent parts are what we call the kingdom reign of the Messiah, where Jesus, Revelation 20, will literally rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. But the dark side of it, are things like the Great Tribulation. So there's both pictures given in the Bible. So it begins after the church is taken out, and it lasts all the way through the Tribulation, all the way through the thousand-year reign of the Messiah. And so we've been studying some of the dark days here in Revelation, beginning in chapter 6, when we studied the, the seal, the trumpet, and then we will study the bold judgments. Look at verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. That's number one. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's the Antichrist. That's number two, the son of destruction, as he's also called, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's number three. How do you know that you're not in the tribulation period, that the day of the Lord has not happened yet? Because these three events, Paul said, has not happened. Now look again at verse three. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. Now you see those words, it will not come. They are different in the typeset, aren't they? They are italicized. And unlike in modern English, where we italicize words for emphasis, beginning way back with the bishop's Bible, they began to italicize words in the Bible when they translated from the original language into the receptor tongue, in that case, English. And so sometimes, if you've worked with language and translation, you know that it's a little awkward to go from one language to another without adding a few words, because people, especially Greeks, think very differently than we do. They will sometimes have a word, and in that word, they contain a lot of thoughts. And if you don't know that, then it might not make sense to you. So the translators will sometimes add words that are either implied or needed in order to smooth it out and make it good English grammar. But here, of course, it's implied in the Greek. It will not come, but I think it's helpful because it forces you to ask a question. What does he mean when he says, it will not come? Well, linguistically, as again is implied by the Greek New Testament, it meaning the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first, the man of lawlessness is revealed, and the Antichrist goes into the temple and displays himself to be God. And listen, when the church is removed, disaster will come upon the earth. Think about it. You're on an airplane, and you're a lost man. And both your pilots happen to be born-again Christians. And all of a sudden, that door to that airplane, which is locked that no one can get into, is sealed up, and both pilots are gone. What's going to happen to that plane? It's going to be disaster. People driving their cars, all of a sudden, the born-again Christians behind the wheel are gone. Some born-again Christians performing a surgery, and all of a sudden, that open-heart surgery is left open with no one to do anything. And so it's going to be a terrible day. But no worries, 88.7 through Rick Forstner will be giving you constant updates, all right? <laughs> I said you. The joke was on you, too. Anyway, um, while they are saying peace and safety, suddenly destruction will come upon them. Now, please understand, 
You cannot calculate the date of the second coming any more than you can calculate the date of the rapture. And many foolish people have done it. They've gone against the clear teaching of Scripture. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36? But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, it may seem strange to you that the Lord Jesus, who said he was equal with the Father, I and the Father are one, did not know something that the omniscient God knew. And by the way, the JWs and the Mormons and other cults will use this to say that he's not really God in human flesh, that he's only a man. But we read and we sang in the last hymn that Matt gave us how he emptied himself. It's called the kenosis. When the Bible says he emptied himself and took on our humanity, he does not, it does not teach he emptied himself or divested himself of his deity. That's impossible. God is eternal. But he laid aside the exercise of his divine attributes, and he lived in humility and independence upon God the Holy Spirit in order to perform everything that he needed to know. But I can tell you now in his glorified body, there are no secrets amongst the triune God. But Jesus makes it very clear that you cannot calculate the exact day. You say, well, wait a minute, I'm looking at these charts that you have, Pastor, and it's seven years. It seems to me right at the end of the seven years, the second coming, well, you know, they're not drawn to scale precisely. I'm trying to give you the big picture. Number one, I've told you many times that between the rapture and the signing of the covenant that begins that seven-year period, there is a short period of time, hours, weeks, days, we don't know for sure. But then the covenant is signed, and then the seven-year period kicks off. You say, well, then once the covenant is signed, assuming you know precisely when that is, then we ought to be able to calculate exactly seven years. No. Listen carefully to what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. He made this plain statement. He said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, then he comes, how immediate is it Two days or three days or we don't know how immediate. And so if you remember when we studied Daniel chapter 12, Daniel speaks of this 1290-day period that we've been reading in Daniel and in the Revelation, but he also spoke of this period of 1335 days. The point is, however God does it, no one is going to be able to pinpoint the exact day or hour. So when that foolish man wrote the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Would Come in 1988, and he made $3 million on it because Christians gobble it up. If they just knew one verse of Scripture, they would have known it was a worthless book, and they shouldn't have lined that man's pocket. Lay that aside. While we do not know the precise day, the Bible says we can know the seasons. Paul said this, now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. And then he goes on to describe the return of Jesus from heaven. And so while we are forbidden to set dates, we do know the season. Now, nothing as we've seen prophetically has ever needed to be, take place for Jesus to come and catch up the church. It's not a prophecy-driven event, but the second coming is. But when you see the atmosphere and the times and the epics that God said would be true at the end of time for the second coming, then you know the rapture that precedes it is all that much closer. 
So the Bible teaches potentially before and definitely after the rapture, there will be a departure. There is going to be an apostasy. And if you will notice, it's articular in 2 Thessalonians 2. He speaks of the apostasy. Now, we've always had apostasy. The word apostasy means to fall away. But there's coming a day where there is the apostasy. And I believe that the stage is being set for that even in our day. I read just uh, last week of um, a Harris poll that was done, but it was very similar to the Gallup, the Bonner, also the Pew Research in the Harvard, Hartford Institute of Religion. So when you have five polls all coming together and they're almost identical, then there's probably some justification to it. They said in 1978, 45% of the American population, which was a big decline from where it was, 48% of the population, or 45% of the population in 1978 went to church on a weekly basis. It's kind of interesting. Now, uh, today, they say 20% of the American population go to church on a weekly basis. Furthermore, somewhere between four and 7,000 churches are scheduled to close this year, just this year alone and this year. Last year, 5,200 churches shut their doors. There's constant articles in the newspapers and online of what these church houses are being changed into. 78% of the churches in the last five years have not added a single new member to their church. You see, and most people who don't even attend church on Sunday now, they, they don't think they're breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Oh, it's no big deal. It's my day. You know, after all, I work six days hard. Off. Sunday's my day off. God said you're supposed to work in six days and rest in one. Now, I don't believe for a moment that the Ten Commandments don't all apply today. Now, I think the application has changed, and so honor your father and mother that it might be well with you and that you might live long in the land of Israel. Now, he says, upon the earth, and now we worship on the first day of the week instead of the seventh day of the week. But listen, all Ten Commandments are binding, but not to most people, not anymore in America. It's pure apathy. And if it wasn't convenient even for some of our members to come today, they went off and they did something else because of apathy. Add to that the theology of the day and the uh, sin that is becoming so widespread today. If you call someone today a sinner, if you say what God says about a certain lifestyle, you're viewed as judgmental and intolerant. And so the sin today is not to commit the sin. The sin today is to call the sin a sin. That's where we've digressed to. And so people are no longer sinful. They're, they're, they're sick. They're no longer wicked. They're just weak, and they have little faults, and we've become very, very desensitized to what God is saying, and to talk today about that God is going to return, and that He's going to literally judge the world, and that some people will spend an eternity in heaven, and others an eternity in hell. Oh, that's way beyond what you should talk about, Pastor. But Jesus warned that His return 
would be like the days of Noah, days of moral permissiveness, and like the days of Lot, days of moral perversion. Let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And so because so many people are deficient of sound theology, the complexion of evangelical churches, those churches that have the gospel, is changing rapidly. And it's setting the stage for the coming apostasy. Notice verse 4, because the Antichrist is the one who opposes himself and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, that rebuilt temple. It will be rebuilt, and it will be done at least by the middle of the tribulation period, and he will display himself as being God. Now, when that event takes place, this is what Jesus calls it. Listen, Matthew 24, 15. When you see the abomination of desolation, that's what Paul's talking about. When the Antichrist goes into the temple and he says, I'm God. When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, that's the temple, let the reader understand. Look out because all hell's going to break loose. And we saw that Jesus's sermon there on the Mount of Olives perfectly parallels Revelation 6 through 19. And so we saw in those first uh, seal judgments that came, it was a perfect parallel between the birth pangs of Matthew chapter 24, the wars and the famines and the natural disasters that are going to happen after the church is removed. And then he describes an event that he marks as the midpoint of this seven-year period, as does John, as does Daniel the prophet, when the Antichrist goes into the rebuilt temple, and then there's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. Remember that? Why? Because the trumpet and the bull judgments are now visible to the inhabitants of heaven, and they are so just breathtaking in terms of what they mean. There's silence, and it's what we've been studying in Revelation. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which were given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image. People are going to have little images of the Antichrist in their home, on their dashboards, across the world. And it was given to him, the false prophet, to give breath to the image of the beast. That is going to be the telltale sign to the Jewish people. They are going to realize that this man, this Jewish man, cannot be their Messiah. Why? Because not only will he go into the temple and claim to be God, which in and of itself is not the abomination of desolation, but how he does it. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or under or in, or in the water under the earth. God is reminding us that you cannot mix truth with idolatry. And that's precisely what this man is going to do. He's going to go into a rebuilt temple, and there's going to be an idolatrous act. There's going to be a dead statue, and it is going to speak. You say, you think it will be computer-generated? No. It will be miraculous. False, lying, signs, wonders, and miracles. The devil is going to empower that piece of stone or whatever it's made out of. And it's going to speak, and people are going to worship the devil. Now, here's another slide that might be helpful to us for a moment. Again, the abomination of desolation. I just want you to picture it in your mind. It's midpoint in the tribulation. That's when this event takes place. And then it's given 42 months 
1,260 days, three and a half years for the Antichrist to wreak havoc like they had never seen. Look at verse 9 here in 2 Thessalonians 2. Again, he says, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with power, signs, and false wonders. Three words, power, signs, wonders. Same three words used to describe the Lord Jesus and used to describe his 12 apostles. This man is going to come in the place of Christ, but with lying, false signs, wonders, and miracles. Look at verse 10. And with the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved. For this reason, for what reason? Because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved. Listen to me. Somebody here this morning, you are not a born-again believer, and you think if your dad, your mom, your brother is right, and they are suddenly removed, that you'll get it right with God, not according to this verse. For this reason, because you did not receive the love of the truth to be saved, Satan takes the seed that they may not believe and be saved. God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. You say, how can God delude a person? This seems unfair. It's a judgment of God. And God will allow it to happen because of someone's resistance. You say, well, I thought people will be saved during the tribulation period. Yes, they will. We saw the 144,000, and they produced the same groups of people, every tongue, tribe, people, and nation for salvation, just like the Antichrist will produce people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. But these are people letting Scripture interpret Scripture who have never heard the gospel in clarity and in power, and no one virtually in America can can claim that today. And so verse 12 says, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Why, if you are here today and you are lost, why do you not want to come to Christ? I can tell you why. Jesus told me why. It's in the Gospel of John, because they love the darkness rather than the light. You think that you've got some living to do, some women to sleep with, some drugs to take, some beer to drink, and you don't want to give it up because you love the darkness more than the light. Listen, you are playing Russian roulette with your soul. Because if you keep putting God off, the devil can come today and snatch the seed that you may not believe and be saved. And if the rapture happens, you will experience the deluding influence that you might believe what is false. It's much to think on. So this mark is a mark of uh, delusion that people will experience in this day. Secondly, some will take the mark because they are cowardly. Some will take the mark because they are convinced, and the reason they are convinced the Antichrist should be followed is because they did nothing with the truth. But some will take the mark because they are cowardly. Once again, in the parable of the sower, Jesus gives different reasons why people do not enter the kingdom of God. Listen to his second reason found in Luke 8, 13, on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. These have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. You know, there's a group of Christians in America, they're called Arminians, who say you can lose your salvation. And they appeal to this verse and about eight or nine others. 
Listen, there's over 150 times in the New Testament where it affirms our eternal security that once we're saved, we're saved forever. And so what may be not clear to you needs to be interpreted in light of what is very clear to you. So ever, whenever you see the word believe, you need to look at it in its context because sometimes it can be referring to simply an intellectual acknowledgement of a truth without a heart willful decision over that truth. And that's what the Lord Jesus is describing here. However, I can promise you, whenever you see the word believe accompanied with the word in, on, or upon, depending on your translation, it's describing genuine, real belief. And so the demons believe, they're not converted, and they tremble. Jesus in John 8 speaks of those Jewish men who had believed, but he will turn around and say, you are of your father, the devil, you're in the bondage of iniquity, to use Peter's description of Simon the sorcerer who had, quote, unquote, believed, but here and not here. And so Jesus is describing a category of people who, notice, they receive the word with joy. There's an emotional side to it. They, they get excited. Oh, this is great. I, I love to hear Pastor Brogy preach. I just, I just, it's so exciting. They believe for a while. But listen to the parallel text. Matthew shed some light on the rocky soil. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. They've got light, but they don't have life. There's an outward confession. There's not an inward possession. Why? Yet he has no firm root in himself. He's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. You know people like this, people who like to be liked. And so the young college student goes off to the university, and now the lifestyle of the Christian, he's in a minority. He's in a minority of minorities. Over 80% of the students at Clemson and USC believe that the homosexual lifestyle is an alternative lifestyle. So if you think differently... You are in a minority of minorities. You don't want to sleep around and get wasted on weekends? You're a minority of minority. And so some of these who aren't truly converted in there in every church, how I know Jesus tells me in the parable of the sower. And he tells me in the Sermon on the Mount that the wheat and the tear and in the kingdom parables, they'll be mixed together until the time of the harvest. Pseudo-Christians, cardboard Christians, fake Christians, not genuine born-again Christians. And so when pressure comes, they deny the Lord Jesus, and they walk away from their faith, and they come home to their parents, so I don't believe the Bible's true anymore, and I'm not sure there's a place called heaven or hell, and I'm not sure what I believe anymore. Listen, that's going to happen on a worldwide level across the planet. It's called articularly the apostasy, the great falling away. And if you're not a part of the Antichrist world kingdom, then you will, in essence, be rejected. Notice third, some will take his mark because they are consumed. They are consumed. Once again, let's think about the parable of the sower. And the third reason Jesus gives why some will not enter the kingdom, as he describes the thorny soil in Luke 8, 14. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and they go on their way. They are choked with worries and riches, and pleasures of this life, 
and bring no fruit to maturity. We'll learn in just a moment that some people will not be able to buy or sell anything. In fact, no person will be able to buy or sell anything unless they have the mark of the beast. So if you are more consumed with the worries of this world and its pleasures and the house you live in and the car you drive, you are in for a huge shock in terms of what is going to happen in this coming day, and the beast will win you over. He will capture your heart. Now, remember what Jesus said. He spoke in Luke 17, again, a parallel account to the Olivet Discourse of, Luke, of Matthew 24 and 25. And in Luke 17, he spoke about those people who would be eating and drinking with drunkards when he comes back. In other words, the world will be partying. They'll just be having a good old time. And then Jesus will come, and they will be forever lost. Now, second, beyond the beast's mark is a mark of renunciation. I want you to think for just a moment that the beast's mark is a mark of identification. It's a mark of identification. And several truths about this identification are brought out here in the text. First, I want you to think about the scope of the mark, the scope of the mark. Verse 16, and he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, all meaning every category of people. Now, if you remember when we studied Revelation chapter 7, and we'll see it again when we come to the 14th chapter, there's 144,000 Jews who are converted who evangelize the world, and they too are given a mark on their forehead such that they are unlike tribulation saints, other tribulation saints that are indestructible. No one can kill them. That's why they're going to be able to just keep preaching and preaching and preaching. Well, it's interesting, Satan being the great duplicator, he also has a mark that he puts on people's foreheads, and we call it the mark of the beast. Now, the word that's used here in Greek, karagma, would pop off the printed page to any first century reader because it was used of a slave who was given a mark. And remember, uh, most of the Roman Empire were in slavery. They were an indentured people. When they conquered a people, they would, they would enslave them. And so you were given a mark of ownership saying that you belong to the empire. It's also used outside of the Bible of a camel who has a mark on his body to show who owns him. It's also used outside of the Bible of a soldier who willingly takes a mark in order to identify with his general that he is his general's until, if necessary, he goes down in death. It's also used of a snake that bites you and leaves his mark. So it's an impression that's left upon people. And this is a visible mark, and the Bible says here, it is on your right hand or on your forehead. And he causes all. Notice the categories. First, the small and the great. That speaks of social status in a society, not the size of the body. The small and the great. From the untouchables, which is the lowest caste in India, to English royalty. Small and the great. Second, notice the rich and the poor. That speaks of an economic category of people, whether it's the billionaire on Wall Street or the person who lives in the slums. And third, and really prophetically, the free men and the slaves. You say there will be slavery at the end of time? Yes, there will be, and there is today. Now, slavery is illegal in every single nation of the world. 
But the United Nations, you will read either 21 million people in the world are enslaved or 48 million people in the world are enslaved, depending on whom they put in that category. If you include those who are involved in sex trafficking, it's at 48 million. If you include those who are slaves for what they call collateral debt bondage, it's 21 million. Many countries of the world, if you owe someone something, it is legal for them to become your indentured servant until it's paid off. And if you die, then your son or daughter takes your place. You say, what countries in the world have this? Scores of them. Here's the top 10. India, China, Pakistan, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Russia, Thailand, DR Congo, Myanmar, and Bangladesh. God, who knows the future, knew that this would even be in place all the way back in John's day, that it would still be here. And so that's the scope of the mark. Let's think for a moment about the nature of the mark here in verse 16. He said that these people are given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Again, the word mark, karagma, it is a word that is used of something that's inscribed or etched on an animal or on a human or on an object, someone who marks an object. In fact, I will not be at all surprised if it is a literal tattoo. Now, that's not to say that there couldn't be some kind of digital chip that's associated with this tattoo, that once you receive the tattoo, you're given the chip. That's not, I'm not saying that's impossible, but understand the rapture could have taken place one year after Pentecost. No digital chips back then. And in every instance, it refers to a literal etching. And I think, again, the world is being set up to be willing to take this coming mark. According to a recent Harris poll, one in five Americans now brandish a tattoo. And the number between 18 to 25 in that age group, it climbs to 40%. Now, for me, that's kind of staggering. Because when I was a boy, there was few men and virtually no women that ever had a tattoo. And so this is a dramatic change that is taking place, not just in America, but globally across the world. Now, let me say, before someone creates a rumor about Community Bible Church, people with tattoos are welcomed here. And almost every week when we do baptisms, I see tattoos in the body that you don't see, on the neck, on the hands, on the feet. It's just become very commonplace. Suppose this guy came to church. What would I do with this fella? I'd try to win him to Jesus. I'd try to share the gospel with him. He'd be welcomed here. I'd want to win him to Christ. Now, I probably wouldn't let him serve in the nursery. <laughs> he'd, he'd scare some of the mothers and probably make the kids cry. But I'd want to win him to the Lord Jesus Christ. He would be very, very important to me. Now, listen. What does God say about tattoos? This is a question, by the way, that often comes up, um, you know, on the Bible line. My wife and I last year were on vacation, and we were at a place where there was people from all over the world. You know what? We felt like a minority because just about everybody had a tattoo. We just, it was just overwhelming. And look, it, 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 the, the whole culture of tattoos has changed. But what does God say? He said this in Leviticus 19.28. You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo on yourselves. I am the Lord. 
And by the way, if you're curious what that verse means contextually, just go to the Bible line, type in tattoo, and you can hear my answer. It's asked many, many times. This is not part of the ceremonial law. Contextually, it's part of God's moral law. And he distinguished the Jewish people by their not banishing a tattoo. In fact, today, only about, as I said, 35% of the Jewish people are religious, and it's bothering the Orthodox to no end because tattoos have become so popular across Israel, but not just across Israel, across the world. By the way, all the church fathers, that's the group of men who lived after the apostles who gave us scores and plethora of writing, and, and uh, they're in unanimous voice that a Christian should never wear a tattoo. It used to be said, can't be said today, but it used to be said not everyone who has a tattoo is in prison, but everyone who is in prison has a tattoo. <laughs> and that's true today. I mean, doctors, lawyers, you name it. People have all kinds of tattoos today. Now, here's a couple of guys. Did, did you have the one on the hand? Go back to the one on the hand. There we go. That's someone's right hand, 666. Could look like that, I suppose. Here's a guy who's a little more bold in the next picture. You can see he, he just really loves to wear that thing. And maybe it would be more like this. I don't know, a little the next guy, a, a little less conspicuous. But people are going to have a mark, and it's the word for in etching. Now, look. Tons of us have a tattoo. I don't have a tattoo, in case you're curious. Okay, that doesn't make me better than you, but by the grace of God, if I had been another 10 years without being saved, I'd probably have one. Who knows? You can't get rid of them. I mean, for the most part. I know you can, but you can't. Just let it be a reminder of the grace of God in your life, that God saved you. I mean, if that fella, I mean, practically, I mean, students call, they say, their mothers call and say, my son's up there at USC, wants to get a tattoo. Will you call him and convince him why not to get a tattoo? Well, again, sometimes you can take a point and you can exaggerate it. And when you exaggerate, you can step back and see the wisdom. Let's just say for the sake of argument, that first fella I had pictured with tattoos, I mean, all over his body. How broad would his audience be in winning people to Christ if he's converted? It's significantly limited. There would be some mothers who'd hold their kids closer, and he wouldn't have a chance to talk to them about the Lord Jesus. You want to be all things to all men that you can win as many people as possible. And if you don't have any tattoos that are visible, you've got even more opportunity to do it. Now, so, again, no rumors, please. I don't know what the percentage is. I bet over half the people who come to these worship services have tattoos. We love them. They serve in leadership. They're deacons. I don't know if we have any elders with tattoos. I haven't asked, but, uh, but you know, they're, they're welcomed here. But the devil is conditioning a world for a coming tattoo, and it's called 666. Don't miss this. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free man and all the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Why their right hand? Well, because most people are right-handed. Some of us have been blessed with left-handedness. But most people are right-handed. But even if you don't have a right arm or a right hand, everybody, if they're alive, has a forehead, so you're able somewhere to receive the tattoo. Now, why there? I don't know. I, I have a, a, a guess 
as to why they might have it on the right hand. Listen to what God said in the prophet Zechariah, the 11th chapter. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. If you know Zechariah chapters 9 through 14, it's the prophetic section of the book. And in that chapter, he describes the Jewish people in relation to the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah. And in reference to the first coming of the Messiah, because of their unbelief, he predicted that they would embrace a worthless shepherd. Some of your translations say a foolish shepherd. And we studied this recently. Jesus said, if I've, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And so because the Jews did not receive Jesus as the Messiah, there is going to come a time where they're going to believe a false Messiah. Now, it's all going to change before the seven years is over, but they're going to believe a false Messiah. There's only one physical description of the man in all the Bible, and it's here in Zechariah. Let me read the rest of the verse. A sword will be on his arm, and on his right arm... Uh, And on his right eye, his arm will be totally withered, and his right eye will be blind. Now, if you remember, we've already noted the head womb from Revelation 13, verse 3. And it might be that this guy is blinded in one eye and has some kind of an arm problem, and therefore people identify him the same way they identified with Moshe Diane. Remember this fella? He was a great Israeli general. I can still see his picture on the front of Time magazine as a boy. And, of course, God used them in what they call a miracle war, and it was a miracle war, the 67 war, to defeat 100 million Arabs that was attacking a small little piece of land called Israel. And so after he won the war, tens of thousands of Israelis wore an eye patch over their eye for a week or so. Why? To identify with their great General Moshe Dayan. Well, people are going to identify with this coming beast. Now, let's conclude with the purpose of the mark in this section, the purpose of the mark. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Think about that for a moment. You're a young mother. You need some diapers. You need some formula. You need some baby food. You go to the store, but because you're a Christian, you can get none. You're a born-again Christian. You, you want to fill up the car with gas, but you can get none. You're a diabetic, and you need meds, but you can get none because you do not have the mark of the beast. You're in your home, and it's cold outside, and you have no heat, or it's blistering hot outside, and you have no air conditioning. Why? Because you cannot buy from the utility company without the mark of the beast. You'll be able to buy or sell absolutely nothing. He provides that no one will be able to buy or sell without the mark of the beast. And some, because they love this world more than they love God, they'll take it. Finally, very quickly, this is a mark of enumeration. It's a mark of renunciation. It's a mark of identification, but it's also a mark of enumeration. The word enumerate, of course, means to number. And so there's a number associated with this man. Let's think first about his number marks his name here in verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. People sometimes call the Bible line, and they'll say, do you think the Antichrist is alive? 
I think he may very well be alive. In fact, I think it's very possible because Satan is not all-knowing and not knowing when the rapture would take place, that in every generation he's had a man in the wings ready to step up as his potential antichrist. But in terms of being able to specifically identify him, no one can do that, not before the rapture of the church. But many Christians have foolishly done that. In the first century, they said Nero was the Antichrist because of his disdain for believers and how he persecuted so many. But Nero didn't even, if you read your Bible carefully, meet the qualifications of the Antichrist. Only on the evil side, but not on the plus side. Uh, in A.D. 81, they said Domitian was the Antichrist because he demanded that men worship him. In the Middle Ages, Muhammad was thought to be the Antichrist because he desecrated so many holy places. Again, this is pre-printing press. People could not read and pour over the Scriptures like we do today, and there was a lot of misinformation that was uh, shared across the world. In the 13th century, the Emperor Fed Frederick II would continually sit, call Pope Gregory IX the Antichrist, and the Pope would call him the Antichrist. They enjoyed that, I think. During the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther said was said the Pope was the Antichrist, and they said he was the Antichrist. A hundred years later, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, they wrote this in Article 25, there is no other head of the church than the Lord Jesus Christ. In no sense can the Pope of Rome be the head of it. That's true. Rather, he, the Pope of Rome, is the Antichrist. Now, again, remember the Reformed faith do not, does not take a futuristic view of the book of Revelation because they spiritualize it. They take the historical view for the most part, or the preterist view, the past view. But the historical view, if you remember the opening sermon in the Revelation, says that the book of Revelation is being fulfilled during human history. And so they literally thought that the Pope in their day was actually the Antichrist. Now understand in Greek and in Latin and in Hebrew, Every letter has a numerical equivalent. And so I suspect it will probably be a Hebrew name since the Antichrist will be a Jew. But I know this much, that when you take the man's name, the letters of his name, and you add it up, it will add up to 666. That's what God tells us. So first, the number declares his name. Secondly, his number marks his nature. It not only declares his name, it marks his nature. The number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. God is underscoring he's a man. 666. It almost has a hiss sound in it, doesn't it? 666. Now, what's God's number? 777. And we've seen already in our study of the Revelation that numbers can have literal value or figurative value. We saw number one was a number of unity. We saw the number three is a, is a, a number that marks the triune God. The number seven represents perfection, and the number six represents the number of a man. Man was created on the sixth day, and six days he is to work, all the way through Scripture. But here's this coming leader who will try to mimic the Holy Trinity, Satan taking the place of the Father, the Antichrist, the Son, the false prophet, the Spirit of God. And so his number is 666, and it adds up to the name of the Antichrist. Now, you don't want to know the name of the Antichrist. 
And if you ever learn it, it just means that you were left behind. Third, his number marks his people. His number marks his people. Again, here is wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. John is saying, if you have wisdom this morning, you'll take him seriously. Now, understand, on this side of the rapture, this is important, but it will also be very important for people on the other side of the rapture who are not yet converted, who have never heard the gospel, who are going to pour over this book. I mean, there's some terrible days that is in front of humanity, and Jesus said, had those days not been cut short, no one would survive. And billions of people will be convinced to take the number of the beast. A census worker came to the door of a lady some 40 years ago, and he said, now, how many children do you have in your home? And she said, let's see, there's Bobby and Jimmy and Sally and... No, no, I don't need their names. Just give me the number, lady. How many kids do you have? She said, sir, my children are not numbered. They are named. Listen, to Satan, you're nothing more than a number. You're a piece of trash, and he wants you to spend an eternity in the lake of fire where he is headed, and if you take the number of the beasts, it is an irreversible decision. It will never be able to be undone. You will have made an eternal decision. Now, you're not saved by not taking the number, but if your faith is genuine in Christ, it's shown by its works, and one of the works of a believer in that time is he refuses the number, and those who have a false faith in a false Messiah will take his number, 666. But it doesn't have to be that way. If you come to the Lord Jesus, the Bible says we've already studied in Revelation chapter 2 and again in chapter 3, God will give you a special name. You are a person. You are a name to God. He cares deeply about you. But if you don't come to Christ, you'll get a number. What will it be, a name or a number? No one can decide for you but you. Our Father, thank you for what we've read this morning, that your word tells us not only how this world came into being, something that Satan habitually attacks in order to undermine the authority of your word, but you've also told us how it all is going to end. And thank you that no one here within the sound of my voice needs to go through the great tribulation. No one needs to experience all the war and the turmoil and the plagues, much less in an eternity without you. For today is the day of salvation. You said, whosoever will may come. And so help someone today to respond to the wooing work of your spirit. Thank you that because your son didn't pay for most of our sin, but because he paid for all of it and he proved his ability as a sinless person when you raised him from the dead, thank you that if we will come through him, we can come to you. You said there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. 
help someone today in humility to admit that they cannot be their own Savior, that in your eyes that they are bankrupt, but help them to flee to the one who completely bore the wrath their sin deserves. Help them not to spend another moment in unbelief, but to come to the light that they might become a son or a daughter of light. Help someone in simple childlike faith, Father, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And Father, for those of us who've made that decision, help us not to be swayed by the moral climate of the day. Help us not to be characterized by lukewarmness. But may there be a passion in our hearts, and may we even this week look for people who need the forgiveness and the new life that you've given us. Thank you that someone was faithful to tell us. May we be as faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. This is a sacred moment. And you may be here and you have a decision that you need to express publicly. Maybe you received Jesus today or in recent days and you never made it public. You may be in Graniteville. You may be in Bluffton, our Hilton Head campus. You may be here in this room. I want to invite you in a moment to leave your seat and come into the front. Your coming will be saying, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. That's what we witnessed just a moment ago as we saw these new believers baptized. They're saying, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm giving him glory that he has rescued me from the penalty that my sin deserves as pictured in death, burial, and resurrection that baptism symbolizes. Maybe you've never done that. You've not been baptized on the right side of your salvation. I want to invite you to come. Maybe you're here and you need a church home. We need you. We don't need you to come sit and sour and soak we need you to come and be a part and to serve the body of Christ. And if you're serious, we would love to receive you today. Matt, lead us. If you have a decision to make, wherever you may be, step out and you come right now.